Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22 and extending to the end of the chapter, verse 34. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. On which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris. And others with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, as we take just a few minutes now in your word and we ponder it, seeking to glean from it the wisdom that you would have us have, we ask for the help, the power of your spirit. Lord, we feel utterly dependent right now to know what it is that you would need us to know. And so would you come in proportion to our needs, being mindful that we are but dust and seeing our desperate condition. Teach to us what you would have us to know. Equip us in the work of the gospel and use us as instruments for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Friday was a very fun day in the Sheridan household. It was Grandparents' Day at school. It's always one of the best days imaginable when your grandparents get to go to school with you. It means that you're not going to do much school when your grandparents go to school with you. And in fact, some special music and productions will be put on and the grandparents will absolutely love it and that wonderful grandparent pride will shine like never before and such was the morning 
this last Friday for many of my children and myself. So I got a chance to look in and go to the program at my kids' school and just simply bask in the glory of it all. Now, as we left, though, we were hungry. It was 11 o'clock-ish. Not had much to eat for, for breakfast that morning, and grandparents are in town, so we've got to go out to eat. We've got to eat something nice, something that'll you know, stick to your ribs a little bit, help you make it through the day. Well, we're, we're out on South Hall Road at this point. We take a, we take a left headed towards Leaper's Fork. Uh, we take a ride on Old Hillsboro Road, and we're driving. It's a gorgeous day. Sun is out. The beautiful rolling hills are stunning. The massive farms, as you know, out that way just catch your eye as you drive by. And there's all this new construction, right? There's always new construction in Middle Tennessee. Everybody wants a slice of Middle Tennessee, even if it's just a sliver of Middle Tennessee. They want it. And that was the case on all of the roads in which we traveled. Now what hit me as we were making our way around was how different each of the construction sites looked. And some of them were were just beginning to clear the ground. A little bulldozer and backhoe work, that was all that was going to be needed before construction began. But um, others were taking out entire hills and removing massive stones and rocks And they were going to be bringing in dirt to solidify the foundation in order for the new construction to happen. And then there was this one home on Del Rio. Well, it was being torn down. There was already a home there, but apparently someone had bought that home and didn't like that home. And they were going to level that home to build an even bigger and better home in that particular spot. The entire edifice was going to have to come down in order to build what they really wanted there. I begin to realize that in order to build a new home, you have to do preparation on the front end in order to get ready to do it. You might even have to do some demolition, taking out some things, destroying some things, clearing of the debris. You can't just go in and start pouring concrete and framing up with some new planks and and nails. You're going to need to rip out the old and get it ready for the new. The same is true in discipleship. The same is true in sharing the gospel. Francis Schaeffer, one of the most influential and effective disciplers of the 20th century, coined a term, pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism is the clearing of the ground of the heart, laying of the necessary foundations before you can even get to the place where you can begin to talk about the gospel. Francis Schaeffer noticed that in the 1960s in Labrie, as he was ministering in Switzerland, that those who were coming to him for questions about uh, ultimate reality didn't actually have the foundations of any working knowledge of the Bible and of the faith in place. And so he couldn't just jump into the story of the gospel or it wouldn't have made sense at all. Let me give you an example. The sentence that we, in many cases, may take for granted as, as self-evident and foundational to Christianity might be considered absurd to those who know very little about the faith, a sentence like, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You see, there's a lot embedded in that little sentence. It rolls off the tongue easy if you've grown up in Sunday school and embraced Christ at VBS and have always been at youth camp and are here every time that the doors are open. 
That's a phrase that rolls off your tongue easily, but who is Jesus? Maybe a question that many would have. What's significant about him dying on the cross, except for that's pretty gross and ugly? And whose sins? My sins? What is sin? Well, there's so many embedded realities within that question that one just can't assume in the midst of a conversation that everyone understands. Well, why don't we just take sin, for instance? What is sin? Well, let's just define it. Let's just define it simply. A transgression against the law of God. Does everyone believe there is a law of God? If they believe in a law of God, which God? You see, we can't just jump in to a dialogue if we don't have the foundations in place. Well, let me use the illustration. You can't hang a picture on the wall if the wall's not there to begin with. Francis Schaeffer, in many ways, is calling us to be spiritual landscapers, readying the soil, clearing away the debris, designing and architecting, we might say, a conversation in order to get to the place where we might be able to say something like, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You see, Paul's engagement in Athens is like this. He doesn't just come in with new lumber and a, a fresh new hammer and some nails that he'd picked up from the hardware store to begin to build the house of Christianity right there on top of the Areopagus. No, he lovingly and logically and I would argue compellingly chips away at what needs to be removed. False assumptions philosophically. Cultural beliefs that grate against the reality of the gospel. Religious practices that actually undermine or subvert the very nature of the faith. He has to do a little demolition in order to do some construction. He has to take away in order to build in. Marva Dawn, in her you know, wonderful little book on uh, the Lord's uh, Prayer says that every time that we pray, thy kingdom come, we are also praying, my kingdom fall. Because if thy kingdom is to come, he's going to rearrange all kinds of stuff. He doesn't have any rivals. And he's going to try to root out everything that's there that's in the way of his kingdom. So we have to remember that right beside the coming of the kingdom is a falling of a whole lot of other things. And that's why I've said that we've got to learn in this passage from Acts 17 to share the gospel in a compelling and subversive way. That's not a word you usually think of when you think about sharing the gospel subversive. I mean, it means to trouble, to disrupt, to cause rupture. But we were told that the gospel is a stumbling block. Now, we don't need to make it more of a stumbling block by, well, being a jerk about it. But we certainly don't need to take away from the reality of it that many will find offensive. And I think that you'll find in what is a compelling presentation of the gospel here in Acts 17 that Paul doesn't shy away from saying some hard things and getting at the heart of the people in Athens. I want to look at just three truths that he gives us in his argument in what I would consider a compelling and subversive argument in order to lay the foundations for the gospel. Three truths that I think we've got to become very conversant in if we want to be compelling in our presentations of the gospel in our own day. The first truth is this. God is the creator and the sustainer of all of life. 
God is the creator and the sustainer of all of life. Look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, who's he talking about? Well, this unknown God that he's found there in Athens, this altar to a God that they don't know about, he's using that as his text. This unknown God that they don't have any idea about, he says, here's, here's what you need to know about him. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord in heaven of earth. And guess what? He doesn't live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Amen and amen, says the Christian. He is creator and sustainer of all. It's a truth that we love to rehearse. Is it commonly accepted in our day? No. It's not even understood. And it wasn't in the day of the Greeks. You see, Paul, as he asserts the creation of oh, that God himself as creator and sustainer, he's actually undermining, subverting, we might say, the very conception of salvation and life that the Greeks held. What was that conception? Well, they, can, they considered the origin of life as coming from multiple different places and power centers. Multiple different gods, all vying in some way or, or shape or form for ascendancy. Some of you have read Bullfinch's mythology. And you know about the pantheon of gods and how they related to one another and acted capriciously and immoral, always trying to step over one another in order to get what it is that they were after. When you read the story of the ancient conceptions of the gods, you begin to realize why the ancient world felt it was really hard to define and to describe real purpose in life. The Epicureans, for instance, they're mentioned in the text, not in the section that we read, but in the verses earlier in Acts 17. You might know that they didn't really believe in a meaning and purpose in life. They thought things were a matter of chance. They saw the capriciousness of the gods and they realized they were essentially at their mercy. And they didn't feel like you could really hope to have any real meaning or purpose in life. And so they said, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. And that's it. The Apostle Paul, when he says, this God, this unknown God who you don't know is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, he's also subverting, he's also tearing out, he's demolitioning the Greek worldview. He's ripping out something that would have been core to Athenian culture. And he says to them, it's not multiple powers vying for ascendancy. It's one single power source. It's one single power source. Nothing exists outside of him. He is the force behind all things. As Paul will write in Colossians, by him all things were made. And in him all things hold together. Think about it, friends. Everything would simply fly apart, whether it's mountains or molecules. If it weren't for Hebrews 1.3, he sustains the world by the word of his power. Now, if this is true, it has massive implications. And one immediate implication is that the religious system there in Athens is broken. As he draws that very parallel out. He doesn't live in a place made by the hands of man or needs your service as if he was lacking something. Which is often the case with the Greek gods using creation as pawns. Follow Paul's logic here. If God is not a part of creation, he's actually the creator of all things. And it's foolish to think we can house him in bricks and mortar. For he made those bricks and mortar. 
Further, if he gives to us life and breath and everything, then it's foolish for us to think that we can give him something that he doesn't already have. If he gave us life, breath, and everything, if we give him anything, then we're just giving him what he already gave to us. The Greeks thought that the religious system, the sacrifices, the temples, the gods, were actually ways of trying to get further in life. In fact, they were worried that you know, the gods would become frustrated, cantankerous, uh, pour out their wrath uh, upon them. And so you went to the temples in order to make the gods happy. I better go sacrifice. I better get to the temple. I don't want the gods mad at me. Something bad might happen. I want to keep him on my good side. They're a little bit like pets. You know, you feed them, you give them water, tend to them, take them for a walk as best you can, and keep them happy. Maybe then they'll do something nice for you. Paul is given an entirely different portrayal. He says, your whole religious system is broke because your whole religious concept of who God is is broken. In fact, the God who I've come to tell you about, the unknown God that somewhere deep in your heart, is eternity is set in your heart, you acknowledge that you don't have the knowledge of this particular God. There's got to be some riddle that runs deeper than just this pantheon of gods. As you do that, I want you to know it's not you serving God. It's God serving you. That's what this unknown God is about. He gives you life and breath and everything. What a radical notion that would have been. A God who serves rather than a God who is to be served. The Greeks would have never had any idea such as it's been completely foreign to the concept of how it is they would have understood the way religious life operated. He's talking to them about creation. He's talking to them about the God who is the sustainer of all. But as he's doing it, he's demolitioning the Greek worldview. He's acknowledging its weaknesses and he's exposing it. And he's rebuilding and attaching new two-by-fours, as it were, to the infrastructure of their mind and their heart to create a compelling and plausible argument for the fact that maybe they've gotten this whole thing wrong. He goes secondly to this point. Not only is God the creator and the sustainer of all of life, but secondly, God is the king of all the nations. And he's the father of humankind. Verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined their allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling places. Now just pause for a minute. There's a radical statement. And he's poking again at the deconstruction of the Greek worldview. What would he be poking at this time in stating that God is the king of all the nations and the father of humankind? It actually necessarily follows. If he's the creator of all that is there and he's the sustainer of all that's there, well, surely he's the ruler over all that is there. He's the ruler of all of the nations. He's the father of, of humankind. But notice what he is actually undermining or subverting. He's subverting Greek nationalism, Greek power, Greek progress. You probably know that the Greeks were pretty smitten with themselves. They thought they were awesome. They're a little bit like Americans in that way. I think they're a cut above everybody else, kind of looks down at the other nations, likes to say things like, we're the greatest nation in the world, you know, likes that kind of narrative. Paul says here, every nation under heaven comes from where? One man comes from one man. Do you know what that means? 
It means that the Greeks aren't superior to anybody else. It means we're all related. We all have the same parents. We're from the same stock. We've got the same bloodline. We've got the same ugly parentage and legacy. As he quotes the, the poet and philosopher Epimenides and Eratus, in him we live and move and have our being. In verse 28, we are his offspring. No person, no ethnicity, no nation can claim superiority over another. Why? Because we've all come from the very same parentage. This would have been a radical notion. National superiority, ethnicity would have been commonplace in the time of the first century, and it actually speaks to the reality of the struggles that we face today, struggles in America with regards to racism. Now, think of the implications of the doctrine of creation and providence on the implications of an issue like racism. Uh, we believe that the world is a work of art that God made from the overflow of his love, and that he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, and he made him humankind in his own image and all humankind extending throughout all history and all of its shades and in all of its differences and distinctiveness ultimately come from one human being which means that all are made in the image of God and deserve the dignity that humankind have been made for in Christ uh, think of the world though that we live in we live in a world that that believes in you know, Evolution determinism, uh, a world of product of chance occurrences that moves along mindlessly and marches throughout history where only the fittest survive. Let me ask you, does that construct undermine racism? No, it's impossible to do so. In fact, it encourages a kind of supremacy of the best. And a kind of recognition that a dog-eat-dog -dog world is where we are. You see, the kind of instruction that you see rising up out of Greek battles and Greek warriors and Greek supremacy. The Apostle Paul here is he's telling the story of the Bible and he's unfolding the doctrines of the attributes of God. He's both subverting the Greek worldview and giving a compelling presentation of why the gospel deserves their consideration. You can catch it there in verse 26 where he says, Oh yeah, this God, he determines the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling. <laughs> Oh, the Greek nation will only spread as far as he allows it to, and it will last only as long as he wants it to, and no longer, by the way. He sits in the heavens, Psalm 50, 115, and he does whatever it is that he wishes. You don't chart your own destiny. What a blow to the Greek ego. God is the king and the ruler of all nations. Everything is guided by his sovereign and supreme will. He is the ruler over all. Now, as we say those things and we talk about the Greek nation in the first century, boy, it strikes home to the 21st century America that we live in, though, doesn't it? Same kinds of assumptions, the same kinds of, of embedded uh, realities, philosophically, culturally, are within the constructs of the minds and the hearts of those in whom we are dwelling with in community day in and day out. Paul is showing us that as we begin to tell the story of the Bible, not only can we 
build in the truths of Christianity, but we must learn to faithfully, lovingly, graciously, but compellingly deconstruct the worldview that won't make room for the possibility of the God of the Bible and of the richness of the gospel. He takes it one step further, at least for our taste today. Point three, he says that this God is the judge of all the world. He's the judge of all the world. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He just threw all of Greek architecture and art and the Greek mind under the bus. He's not like that. He's not like that. He can be if he's creator of all and sustainer of all. If he's ruler of all. He can't be captured in the material compositions of of the world. He's not, as Isaiah 44 makes clear, he's not to be formed out of the wood that you use to warm yourself and bake your bread. And then later fashion as an idol and decide it will deliver you. He says the things don't work. There's foolishness that's involved in it. He says, what I want you to see is, verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. That's been the theme of this whole sermon. You remember how he started this? Men of Athens, I perceive you're very religious. And you're so religious that as I walked around and I looked at the pantheon of your gods, I actually found an altar to the unknown, a God that you're ignorant of. But I've come to tell you about the God who has revealed himself and he is no longer to be unknown in Athens. The times of ignorance he's overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent. What is repentance? What is repentance? What's it look like? What's it consist of? Well, I can tell you this, it's both destructive and constructive. It requires both demolition and will require rebuilding. It is the turning from the sins or the idolatries to the God in whom we are to worship and serve. To turn from the idols, to turn from the idol of the mind, the idol of art and imagination, the idol of your own power and progress, the the idol of your own exceptionalism, the idol of yourself, to turn from yourself unto this unknown God who you now know, which I have preached to you. To turn from those things, to see those things fall, to pray, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and watch the kingdom of one's own heart and life fall. He says that's the turning point. That's that's the crux of the matter to call you into repentance. How would they know in a sermon like this to do that? We're not given a lot of information with regards to the details of the Apostle Paul's sermon here. We have to assume, based upon Luke's writing, that we're given a summary sketch of what it is that the Apostle Paul spoke about. But we do see that he mentions here in verse 31 this judgment 
And he mentions someone within this judgment that gets us to the crux of the matter. He says, because he, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How? By a man. By a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, earlier in this sermon, the Apostle Paul has talked about a man. He said, we've all come from a man. What's the man that he's referring to? Well, it's the man of Adam. But here, by the end of his sermon, he is traced from Genesis all the way to Jesus. Even further, he is traced from Genesis all the way to Jesus, all the way to Revelation, to the end, to the very judgment of the world. And we know that he is talking about this judgment whom he's appointed, which will be adjudicated by Jesus. This is the man whom he has appointed. Notice the day is fixed. It will be final. It is definite. And we know that because he has walked from creation, if you will, the past, to the present, he's ruler over all nations, to the future, he will judge And it will be final that inside of that history he begins to talk about a man named Jesus. Who is like that man, Adam. In Genesis chapter 1, who was the federal head of all of humankind. That when he sinned, we fell in him. And the dominoes have kept falling throughout all of history. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that Jesus is the second Adam. How did he become the second Adam through the incarnation? He became a part of creation. What did he come to preach? He came to preach that he was the king of a kingdom. And he was going to be ruler over all nations. But it wasn't a kingdom of this world. It was a kingdom that was not of this world. And what did he say about Jesus with regards to his judgment? He said that he would one day come back and he will judge the living and the dead. That this ruler who is now ascended on high will ultimately come back in power and create a new heavens and a new earth where everything will be run according to his will. All his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And he says, we know that this is going to happen. Why? Because he's been raised from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. He's overcome the grave. The thing that none of the Greek world had a riddle by which to understand could be overcome oh yes some mocked others said this is fascinating but strange we'll hear you again and then a few others believed what would they have believed in well if we can be faithful to the rhythm of what it is that Luke has given us here of Paul's sermon we have to assume that he not only spoke about the resurrection but in order to speak about the resurrection you have to talk about The cross. This Jesus who became a part of creation because he loved creation. The God who gives us life and breath and everything. The God who doesn't need to be served but the God who loves to serve. You know what? This God became a part of creation. And when this God became a part of creation, you know what he said? He said, I have come not to be served but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. 
And when he came, he came preaching a gospel of repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because he was the king. The king had come and when the king comes, the kingdom of God comes. And that requires everybody to step in line with the king. And so he said, repent and join my family. Become a part of my kingdom. It's not of this world. But then he also dealt with judgment. How did he deal with judgment? Well, he dealt with judgment on the cross. He dealt with judgment on the cross. Do you see when the Lord Jesus Christ came... He came not just to threaten judgment is coming. He came to experience judgment for you in his flesh on the cross. That's what he came to do. He came to pay for the penalty of the righteousness that's required of us, of which we have utterly failed. That first Adam completely failed, and every single Adam and Eve after him, us included, have utterly failed. But Jesus paid the penalty on the cross and ultimately experienced the judgment of God on our behalf so that when we think about him coming on the day of judgment, we don't have to shake in our boots because we know that on that day it will be declared that Jesus has received the judgment on our behalf. Praise be to God if you repent and trust in him. If you repent and trust in him. You see, as the Apostle Paul began to deconstruct the Greek worldview and begin to compellingly present the gospel, he set forth a message that even if they didn't believe it, they wanted to believe it was true. When we begin to tell the gospel in the way that the gospel needs to be tell, told, we will find that people very often may not have faith to believe it, but boy, they would wish that it were true. And that's what we mean by compelling. That's what we mean by compelling. We mean telling the gospel in such a way that it has force, it has impact, it has beauty. It has beauty through the pages of Scripture. And I want you to see that the Apostle Paul, when he does it, he didn't start by saying, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He started by saying, let me tell you the story of the Bible. Let me help you make sense of what you may have learned was a cosmic goo and a whole bunch of random occurrences that's marching towards the survival of the fittest. But I've got another story to tell you that I think is more compelling. You may have been told that what's most important is your personal achievement and approval in life and gaining the power as much as you possibly can and being in with the, the in crowd. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the ruler of all the nations and he obliterates everything that thinks it has ascendancy more than him. And I think that's compelling to my heart. I don't know what's going to happen at the grave. I'm fearful about what's going to take place. I don't know whether there's a life after death or whether this life even has meaning. Well, I'd like to tell you a story where judgment comes early upon someone who loves you. So that you can have hope beyond the moment where you stop breathing and your brain stops functioning. And you don't pass into an oblivion or absorbed into the waterless future. But you're ushered into the presence of a God who from before the foundations of the world set his love on you. Friends, when you begin telling the story of the gospel in that way, not everyone will believe, but boy, they'll want to. But boy, they'll want to. 
It's not our responsibility to get people saved. You know that, right? <laughs> we don't actually do that work. We don't, in the end of the day, make disciples. It's the Spirit of the Lord. He does the convincing and the converting, as one of my aunts likes to say. But you know how he does that? Through your sharing. That's how he does it. The Spirit didn't move in Athens before Paul preached the gospel. The Spirit moved as he preached it. And he let the Spirit accomplish its purposes. But he did what he was supposed to do. He opened his lips to declare the praise of God. Friends, the world often thinks Christianity is an intellectual liability. <laughs> and thinks it's a, it's a rhetorical twist and a self-help um, method and a mythology. But for those who are being saved, it's the power of God and the salvation. And so don't be afraid to be mocked. Or for others to say, I'll have one more conversation with you. Because God will always bring about Dionysius's of Areopagus and Damaris's. Because his kingdom will not fail. The church will advance. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Because he's creator. And sustainer. Ruler. Savior, Lord and Judge. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would set it upon our hearts, the reality of these truths. You'd give us the sweetness that comes from believing them from the heart. And you'd give us the momentum and the impetus by which to look out, a, look out at the world that needs to hear a different story. It needs to hear a true one. The one that you're telling. Anoint our lips to speak. And give us hearts to rest in your work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.